Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 15 from God's Smuggler, Brother Andrew, with John and Elizabeth Sherrill. Chapter 15, The Greenhouse in the Garden. It took me four hours to get across the Romanian border when I pulled up to the checkpoint on the other side of the Danube. I said to myself, Well, I'm in luck. Only half a dozen cars. This will go swiftly. When 40 minutes had passed and the first car was still being inspected, I thought, poor fellow, they must have something on him to take so long. But when that car finally left and the next inspection took half an hour too, I began to worry. Literally everything that family was carrying had to be taken out and spread on the ground. Every car in the line was put through the same routine. The fourth inspection lasted for well over an hour. The guards took the driver inside and kept him there while they removed hubcaps, took his engine apart, removed seats. Dear Lord, I said, as at last there was just one car ahead of me, what am I going to do? Any serious inspection will show up those Romanian Bibles right away. Lord, I went on, I know that no amount of cleverness on my part can get me through this border search. Dare I ask for a miracle? Let me take some of the Bibles out and leave them in the open where they will be seen. Then, Lord, I cannot possibly be depending on my own uh, stratagems, can I? I will be depending utterly upon you. While the last car was going through its chilling inspection, I managed to take several Bibles from their hiding places and pile them on the seat beside me. It was my turn. I put the little VW in low gear, inched up to the officer standing at the left side of the road, handed him my papers, and started to get out. His knee was against the door, holding it closed. He looked at my photograph in the passport, scribbled something down, shoved the papers back under my nose, and abruptly waved me on. Surely thirty seconds had not passed. I started the engine and inched forward. Was I supposed to pull over, out of the way, where the car could be taken apart? Was I? Surely I wasn't. I coasted forward, my foot poised above the brake. Nothing happened. I looked out the rear mirror. The guard was waving the next car to a stop, indicating to the driver that he had to get out. On I drove a few more yards. The guard was having the driver behind me open the hood of his car, and then I was too far away to doubt that, I, that indeed I had made it through that incredible checkpoint in the space of thirty seconds. My heart was racing, not with the excitement of the crossing, but with the excitement of having caught such a spectacular glimpse of God at work. Setting out on this trip, I had tended to lump Bulgaria and Romania together in my mind. Now, of course, I knew that they were two very different places. Romania was known among Iron Curtain Christians themselves as the greenhouse of atheism. It was still Russia's laboratory 
in which she tried out, out anti-religious experiments, rigid control of the church by the state, economic pressures against believers, sowing of suspicion among religious leaders, confiscation of property, restriction of worship services, and prohibition on evangelism. This, I was told, was what I could expect to find in Romania. As soon as I was over the border, I could sense a new degree of police control. At every village, it seemed, there was a police checkpoint. Officers stopped every peasant cycling into the hamlet. Where was he going? What was his business? Even I, with the relative freedom of a hard-currency tourist, had my visa stamped with the cities I would visit and dates on which I must appear at each point along my itinerary. I found out how real this control was when I arrived in a charming little town about 50 miles from Kluju and decided, since it was already getting late, that I would like to spend the night there. The local authorities were surprised that I should even ask. But sir, they said, looking at my tourist card, you are expected for dinner in Kluju. You can barely make it now by hurrying. Not wanting to get in trouble on such a minor point, I did as they wished. I spent, sped into Kluju, arriving just as the hotel din dining room was closing to find my table seat set, the hors d'oeuvres out, and even a little Dutch flag sitting snappily in the center of the water glasses. Inside the various cities, however, I was free to come and go as I chose. It was Sunday morning. I woke very early to a bright and cheery day, anxious to join my fellow Christians in this lovely garden of a land. The clerk in the hotel eyed me a little dubiously when I asked for a church. We don't have many of those, you know, he said. Besides, you couldn't understand the language. Didn't you know, I said, Christians speak a kind of universal language. Oh, what's that? It's called agape. Agape? I never heard of it. Too bad. It's the most beautiful language in the world. But anyhow, how do I get to church? While the chief weapon against the church in Bulgaria was the registration requirement, in Romania the technique was consolidation, consolidate denominations, consolidate physical facilities, consolidate the hours of worship. Wherever there were churches with empty pews, the congregations were merged with others in nearby villages and the leftover facilities confiscated by the state. In theory, it sounded reasonable and even advantageous to the church. One large united congregation in place of several small struggling ones. In practice, it meant that many members of the shut-down churches simply ceased attending anywhere. Most of them were peasants attached to their old places of worship, and travel between villages was slow and difficult. Two church services were allowed each week, one on Saturday, another on Sunday, 
but Saturday was a full workday in Romania. The Saturday night services were poorly, poorly attended. To that, in effect, worship had been consolidated into a single meeting. But what a meeting! I arrived at 10 o'clock in the morning, and the service had already been underway for an hour. I would not have found a place to sit except that I was recognized as a foreigner and invited to take a seat on the dais. And so, with my knees squeezed tight against the organ, I spent the next three hours with this group of Christians in the heart of communism's inner circle. When it came time for the collection, I put in the plate approximately the same amount in Romanian currency that I would have at home. As luck would have it, I was the first person to whom the plate was passed. There lay my bill for all to see on the bottom of the alms basin. As the collection continued, I realized with growing embarrassment that I had put in twenty or thirty times as much as anyone else was giving. I noticed something else. Often, one of the worshippers would put a coin in the basin and hold it while he made change. I had seen this in Catholic and Orthodox churches where there were pew fees, but never in a Protestant church. The entire coin was obviously more than most people could give. Probably a bill as large as the one I had placed in the plate represented a month's free-to-spend income. I felt bad about what must have come across as the ostentation of a rich foreigner, and that made me smile, remembering how we had always been the poorest family in Witte. To make matters worse, at the end of the officiatory, uh, him, the head usher, instead of taking the plate to the altar, brought it to me. He shoved the plate into my hands, repeating some words in Romanian. Finally, I understood I was to take my change. No one would put so large a note into the offering without expecting some back. What should I do? Accept the change in the name of graciousness? Or accept the chagrin and let the church have the money I wanted them to have? While I was debating, with every eye in the room upon me, I realized with great joy that this was not my money at all. That was not my gift I began in German, and fortunately a man emerged from the congregation to translate. That was not for me, I repeated, remembering the hundreds of readers of Crutch von Umhug, whose anonymous gift was represented in that bill. It is from the believers in Holland to the believers in Romania. It is a token of oneness in the body of Christ. I watched the faces in the room as the man translated, and once again I saw that incredulous question, that dawning hope. We are not alone, then. We have brothers in other places. We have friends we never knew. When at last that long service broke, I approached the man who had spoken German and said that I would like to talk with him. It turned out that he was secretary for the entire denomination in Romania, but it was clear that 
He did not welcome my suggestion of private talks. He gave evasive answers and, as soon as he could, excused himself. Puzzled, I followed him out of the church. He was striding up the street as rapidly as he could, for he was a heavy-set fellow. Perhaps it's taking me to... It's talking to me in public that he was afraid of, I thought, and so I followed him, but at a discreet distance, until to my delight he turned in at a private house. What a piece of luck, I thought. Now I'll have a chance to talk to him with no one to see. I hung around for about fifteen minutes until I was sure the street was empty, then went up to the door and knocked. I could feel eyes peering out at me. Then the door was thrown open quickly, and I was pulled inside the house. "'What do you want?' said the secretary. I tried to cover my surprise at his ruquishness uh, with a friendly smile. "'I just want, wanted to talk with him some more,' I said, to ask if there were, any, there were anything I could do for him. "'Do?' Well, Bibles, for instance. Do you have enough Romanian Bibles? The secretary looked at me sharply. You have Romanian Bibles with you? You brought them across the border? I have Bibles, yes. He paused a moment. Then, with decision, we need no Bibles. And you must never again, under any circumstances, come to my home or to the home of any believer in this way. I hope you understand that. Was I mistaken? Or did I hear a cry for help through all this this suspicion and brusqueness? Well, could I see you in your office then? Would that be safe? It isn't a matter of safe. I didn't say that. And then, but yes, if you come to our office tomorrow, I will see to it that the president is there for a brief talk with you. The next day, I walked into the headquarters of this denomination, carrying six Bibles in my briefcase. The secretary was there, looking as uncomfortable as ever. Big drops of perspiration had formed on his forehead. I could not get over the impression that he was in terror of something or someone. I was ushered into the office of the president. What can I do for you? he asked in German. I shook his hand and started to reply that perhaps I might be able to do something for him. But then I remembered that earlier con conversation with the secretary, apparently to admit a need bordered on a political statement. So I simply said I was visiting his country as a Christian and wanted to bring back to my people any word of greeting he might like to extend. The president's face relaxed. This was safe ground. A word of greeting to the exploited peoples of Holland from the people of the great Republican poplars of Romania. The secretary smiled and stopped, mopping his forehead. Won't you sit down? he asked, drawing up a chair. For a quarter of an hour, the three of us talked, carefully avoiding any real exchange. We talked about Romanian tomatoes, the largest I had ever seen, and about watermelon which I had tasted for the first time in this country. We talked about the pleasant climate, kept mild, the president explained, by the Black Sea. And while we talked, I had 
a chance to glance around the room. I was fascinated by one observation. Every chair, every table, every picture on the wall had a number on it. I wondered if they had been inventoried by the government to keep them from being diverted to personal use. After we had exhausted the weather and the local tomatoes, the conversation lagged. Taking a deep breath, I decided that the time had come either to be rebuffed again or else to establish a real contact with these two frightened men. I opened my briefcase and drew out one of the Bibles. Will you permit me? No, that's not what I want to say. Will you permit the Dutch people to present the Romanian people with these copies of the Bible? Right away, the two men stiffened. It was amazing how quickly the secretary began to perspire again. The president took the Bible in his hand, and for the briefest moment I caught the tenderness with which he held it. But no, he wasn't going to yield. He shoved the Bible abruptly back into my hands. I do not want this, he said. We've spent too long already. I have things to do this morning. And so I walked out of that building, carrying six Bibles I had come in with. The receptionist, I noted, crossed my name off a list as I left, almost as if she were on guard in a military establishment. Who knows? Maybe she herself was a member of the secret police. How could I condemn the fear and the suspicion of the president and the secretary when I had never experienced the conditions under which they had to work? And still, this was not the entire story to Romania. For the following week, I met Christians living under the same persecution who had still kept alive something of divine hope and trust. The circumstances were similar enough to make a really good comparison. In both instances, I met with the stated leaders of established Protestant denominations in their official headquarters. In both instances, there were two men present beside myself. An important uh, element in the comparison, since suspicion of one's fellow Christians played such a large factor in the slow wearing down of the church. This time, too, I noticed the numbers. On the walls of this office were three pictures. They showed the president of the country, the secretary of the National Communist Party, and the famous old artist's conception of the straight and narrow way. How, I wondered, had the government clerk described that painting? I was worried about the president of this denomination, Georgie. The moment he stepped into the room, this frail little man was so winded from the effort of walking that it was several minutes before he could catch his breath. When he did, we discovered a problem. Neither he nor Aeon, the secretary of the group, spoke a word of my languages, nor on I of theirs. We sat facing each other across the barren, multi-numbered room, quite unable to communicate. Then I saw something. On Joyce's desk was a well-worn Bible, the edges of the pages eaten back an eighth of an inch from the constant turning. 
what had what would happen. I wondered if we were to converse with each other via the scriptures. I took my own Dutch Bible from my coat pocket and turned to First Corinthians sixteen twenty. All the brethren greet you. Greet ye one another with a holy kiss. I held the Bible out and pointed to the name of the book, recognizing, recognizable in any language, and to the chapter and verse number. Instantly, their faces lit up. They swiftly found the place in their own Bible, read it, and beamed at me. Then George was thumbing the pages, looking for a reference, which he held out for me. Proverbs twenty five twenty five, as cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Now we were all three laughing. I turned to the epistle of Paul to Philemon. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord. It was Eon's turn, and he didn't have to look very far. His eyes traveled over the next lines, and he pushed the Bible to me, pointing with his finger. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Oh, we had a wonderful half-hour conversing with each other through the Bible. We laughed until the tears were in our eyes, and when, at the end of the conversation, I brought out my Romanian Bibles and shoved them across the desk and insisted with gestures and remonstrances that yes, they were supposed to keep them and that no, to the hand in the pocket and the raised eyebrow, there was no charge. Both men embraced me again and again. Later that day, we, when we finally had an interpreter and our conversation began became more mundane, I made arrangements with Ian to take all the Bibles I had brought with me. He would know better than I where to place them in this hard country, and he assured me that it was better to have just one contact than several. That night, back in my hotel, the clerk called to me. Say, he said, I looked up that agape in the dictionary, there's no language by that name. That's just Greek, just a Greek word for love. That's it, I said. I was speaking in it all afternoon. The communications dam had been cracked at least, at last. Uh, over the next week and a half, I traveled throughout Romania with an excellent interpreter following leads given me by George and Ian, I met every shade of attitude, from the extreme of defeat to the extreme of courage. It was easy to sympathize with the defeated ones. What can we do? Was such a natural reaction. So many had only one ambition, to get out of Romania altogether. Oddly, though, the more devoted a Christian, the more likely he was to stay put in Transylvania, we visited such a family. These Christians had a poultry farm, that, uh, or poultry farm, that would was still at least partially their own property. However, the state had given them a production quota 
that was beyond their capacity to meet. When they failed to reach it, they had to buy enough eggs on the open market to make up the difference. Year after year, this had happened, and the economic suffering was great. Why do you stay then, so that you can keep your farm, I asked? The farmer and his wife both looked shocked. Of course not, he said. In fact, we certainly will lose the farm. We stay because... He let his eyes travel across the valley. Because if we go, who will be left to pray? But I also met Christians who were less sure. I learned of one little church far off the beaten path that was working with gypsies. Even as we drove up, I could tell it was in trouble. The grass was high in the churchyard. Several windows in the sanctuary were broken. The beehives out back were toppling over. My interpreter and I went around behind the church where the pastor's living quarters were and knocked. The pastor was not at home, but his wife greeted us, and shortly we were eating saucers full of honey, so sweet it hurt my teeth. The pastor's wife told us that her husband had gone to Bucharest to plead their case with the central government, the local party chief was demanding the church building, saying it was needed for a clubhouse. She and her husband, she said, had worked among the gypsies for almost thirty years. I had seen many of them on the road coming in, little groups sitting by their wagons, always accompanied by a meager horse and some squawking geese. Recently, she went on, the government had at last decided to do something for them by offering them better-paying jobs. She and her husband had been delighted, of course. They had been urging this for many years, but there was a condition. No gypsy who attended the church could apply for one of the new jobs. And so, said the pastor's wife, we are in this crossfire. Our members are leaving us. And as our congregation dwindles, the party has more and more of an argument for taking away our building. I don't think we will be here next year. And at and all at once, she began to cry, soundless, inwardly, only her shoulders betraying her. I suggested that perhaps the three of us could pray about the things she had told us. And so we bowed our heads, and I prayed for her and for her husband, for the gypsies, for the whole des desperate situation in that little hamlet. When finally we raised our heads, her eyes were moist again as she said, You know, years ago I knew that people in the West were praying for us, but now for many years we have not heard from them. We've never been able to write letters, and it's thirteen years since we've received one. It has come to us that we are forgotten, that nobody is thinking of us, nobody knows our need, nobody prays. I at last was able to assure her from the depth of my heart that as soon as I got back, enough people would know about them that they, that they need never again feel that they were carrying their burdens alone. Once again, the time was approaching when I should have to leave. My visa had almost expired. 
Most important, I knew that Corey's time was almost here. My last hours in Romania were spent with Jorge, Jorge and Ian. I arranged to leave on a Monday so I could attend the Sunday service with them. It was a meeting to remember. By now, I was used to the services lasting from 9 to 1, but this one lasted from 9 in the morning until 5 in the afternoon, breaking then for an enormous meal. Jorge was the speaker for the last sermon of the day. It was a very personal one. He talked about the shortness of breath that had plagued him for years. But do you know, he said, when we had that wonderful conversation with our Bibles, Something happened, not only to my spirit, but to my body as well. I've been breathing better ever since. And then Jorge opened his Bible. I have a final scripture that I should like to share with you, Andrew. He told me through the interpreter, Will you open your book to Acts 20, verses 36-38? through I found the place. This, said Jorge, is the passage that says, Goodbye, the way I should like to. And when we have spoken thus, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all wept and embraced Paul and kissed him, sorrowing most of all because of the words he had spoken, that they should see his face no more, and they brought him to the ship. I had to laugh at him applying words about Paul to me. That's going from the highest to the lowest, I said. But although we might be small in faith next to those first century Christians, at least we could follow their example. And so after dinner, I did kneel down and pray once more with them all. And then these Christians in the center of the communist world wept and embraced me and accompanied me to my little blue ship. Next time, chapter 16, The Work begins to expand.